The China in Africa podcast is brought to you in partnership with the Africa-China Reporting Project at Wits University in Johannesburg. The ACRP aims to improve the quality of reporting on Africa-China relations through reporting grants, workshops, and other opportunities for journalists. More information at africachinareporting.co.za and our dedicated training website at africachinatraining.com. Hello and welcome to another edition of the China in Africa podcast, a proud member of the Seneca Network from SubChina. I'm Eric Olander, and as always, I'm joined by Kobus van Staden, the senior China-Africa researcher at the South African Institute of International Affairs in Johannesburg, South Africa. A very good morning to you, Kobus. Good morning. Kobus, we're wrapping up 2020 with a look back at some of the key issues in the China-Africa relationship that happened this year. This was a pivotal year, more so than many other years in the China-Africa relationship. Last week, we had a fantastic discussion with Yan Wang you know, from Peking University and the new Structural Economics Institute there about the debt issue. Today, we're going to look back at one of the key moments in the year related to race relations, China-Africa culture, discrimination, Black-Chinese relations and whatnot, really anchored in what happened in what's become known as the Guangzhou incidents back in April. And let me just kind of rewind the clock a little bit, just for those of you who may not have been following the situation or have forgotten what happened. A lot of this started in late March, early April, at the height of when China was in their COVID-19 lockdown. Now, Guangzhou had not suffered anywhere near the levels of COVID infections that other parts of China had, namely Wuhan had. So they had a pretty open society for the most part relative to other cities in China. But back in on April 1, uh, there were a couple incidents in the first week that kind of led up to uh, what we're going to talk about. A Nigerian man tested positive for COVID-19. Uh, he arrived somewhere in late March from Nigeria. He was then hospitalized, uh, and then he tried to escape the hospital. And while he was trying to escape the hospital, he assaulted a nurse, and he bit the nurse, and he punched the nurse. And the reason why this is so important is because these images went viral very quickly in China, and it really kind of alarmed people when they saw that. Now, that same week, four Nigerians who came out of quarantine were infected with COVID-19 after eating at the Nigerian restaurant Emma Food in Guangzhou, now, they were reportedly infected by the owner of the restaurant, who was Chinese, and not thought to have brought it into the country from overseas. But that distinction was lost on social media after the story went viral. Again, these, there was a couple of these stories about Africans in, in, in Guangzhou, Nigerians in particular, that really got everybody kind of worked up on social media. Now, in this first and second week of, of April, Guangzhou government and the Guangdong provincial government started to crack down, and they just came down like a hammer in classic, typical Chinese fashion. And one of the things that they did was they said, we're going to start inspecting everything to make sure that everybody's papers are in order. And this then prompted about April 12th or 13th, really a, a fear of hotels and also landlords about having people who live in this gray area in terms of their papers work and whatnot and there were a lot of evictions from hotels and homes. And what ended up happening is on the weekend of April 12th, we started to see pictures of people flooding onto social media, particularly in Africa, Facebook, Twitter, WhatsApp channels. And, and let me just give you bring you back. And this is how Vice News covered the situation. Now, they covered it two weeks after this all happened, but they gave a really interesting overview. The last two weeks were tough on China's relationship with Africa. 
Videos that appear to show Guangzhou officials targeting Africans as part of a COVID-19 crackdown went viral. See what the Chinese police are doing to us. See, no house, no way to rest. African nationals from many countries, including Nigeria, reported being evicted from their homes, being forced into quarantine at their expense, and getting denied service at local businesses, including a McDonald's. So in those two weeks, from mid-April to the end of the month, these videos on social media started to really inflame people. And it was this sense of what is happening. And the images of young, predominantly African and black men sleeping on the streets of Guangzhou, sometimes in the rain, were just very, very upsetting to a lot of people. Now, this was a story that was fueled by social media. And there were a number of seminal moments that stood out. Two in particular, I want to bring your attention to. Number one was uh, a really a powerful moment on the streets of Guangzhou at the height of when people were on the streets. Uh, Nigerian Consul General Anozi Madabuchi Cyril, he confronted local authorities about the treatment of Nigerians. Now, it's a bit difficult to understand what he's saying in this, in this audio clip that I want to play for you because he's wearing a mask and the audio level was a little bit low because the person shooting it was on a phone a little bit far away. But it's important nonetheless because this is one of those videos that went viral, especially in Africa, in part because it represented really strong African agency at the height of the crisis. And it was this idea that somebody was standing up on behalf of those African migrants and African residents and the African community who had been the victims of discrimination. The relation between you, foreign affairs, and the consulate, yeah. before you take any decision, mm-hmm. after you have taken your policy, before you adopted it, before you carry it out, you must communicate to us as accredited consulates to you. Then if you communicate to us, we are going to be able to sit with you and then see the modality, how we are going to discuss it with our national. You didn't communicate with us, we didn't hear anything from you. You are arresting our thing. It's unacceptable by the federal government of Nigeria. And then we are not going to go by it. If you want all the Nigeria to leave to China, tell us we are ready to leave. Now, again, that was difficult to understand, but the core of his message is you didn't communicate with us. And so when the the local government came in and did this crackdown to really ensure that the COVID-19, everybody, their papers were checked, their health records were in order, and really kind of sent fear into the community that people might be in trouble for housing people who were not authorized to be there, they didn't communicate with the local Nigerian consulate, the local African community, and, and local stakeholders. And that, as we look back, is one of the key issues, and we're gonna talk a little bit more. So that was a very important social media moment There was another social media moment in Abuja that was equally important. Now, this was remarkable when it happened. Uh, The Speaker of the House of Representatives in Nigeria called in then-Ambassador Zhou Pingjian, who is now the ambassador to Kenya, and he wanted to make sure that he understood why people, particularly in Nigeria, were concerned about the events on the ground. And again, these types of events normally happen behind closed doors, We don't usually get to see it when an ambassador gets kind of called in. And the way that the speaker was addressing the ambassador was absolutely fascinating. Again, it's a little bit difficult to hear, but it's a really important moment. Uh, How you treat our ambassador is very important. Mm. Very, very important. Mm. And I'm glad you did that. But how you treat our citizens is more important. Uh, I know. Yes, yes. How you treat the ambassador. Yes, yes. So, I mean, I just want to to thank you, I'm sure, you know, my, my colleagues 
have some comments as well. You said you haven't seen any of the videos that are out there. I'm at liberty to show them to you. Everybody has a phone if you want, if that will convince you, because you said you haven't had an official complaint. So there he starts showing some of the videos, and it was a really important moment because it really highlighted the disconnect between the Chinese side and between pretty much everybody else. And this was very hard for a lot of people on the outside to understand. We were seeing everything on Facebook, on Twitter. It was just a massive story. How is it possible that the ambassador from China to Nigeria had not seen any of these videos. And I 100% believe Ambassador Joe when he said he had not seen them simply because it's hard to explain to people how disconnected and removed most Chinese are from the worlds of Facebook and Twitter and international social media channels that are all blocked in China. And even though he's not in China, his worldview does not move around Facebook. So that was another very, very important moment. Now, after all this started happening, the Chinese at first were slow to respond to this. So the first two or three days after the crisis kind of erupted, we didn't hear anything from the Chinese. And then they started to mobilize their response. And the initial response came out, which was saying, this did not happen. There is no discrimination. There is no racism. This is all a misunderstanding. And then you're going to hear in this uh, in this soundbite from Zhao Lijian, who is the Chinese foreign ministry spokesman, and he really in many ways took the lead in explaining and articulating the Chinese response, basically coming off very clearly and saying, this is not about China-Africa relations. This is about the United States trying to put a wedge. That's a key word that they use in their rhetoric, a wedge between Chinese and Africans. This is a time for the whole world to unite in fighting the coronavirus pandemic. It is immoral and irresponsible for the United States to try to alienate other countries by spreading rumors. We urge the U.S. to focus on its own efforts in fighting the pandemic. It won't succeed in souring the friendship between China and Africa. The Chinese government has made it a priority to ensure the safety of foreign nationals since the outbreak began. All foreign nationals are treated equally in China, and any act of discrimination against them is strongly opposed. Now, that last part of what he said was absolutely instrumental here because the Chinese held on to that line very, very hard in terms of saying there is no discrimination. And then to their credit, in the aftermath of all this, they moved very aggressively to ensure that the African community was brought into a discussion. They brought in the provincial governor, the mayor of Guangzhou came in, they went to students and they did these wonderful kind of propaganda things where they brought you, you know dinner to the quarantined African um, travelers who were in hotels. And they really went out of their way to try and say, listen, oops, sorry, but that's the key part here, Kobus. The key part here is that there was never a direct apology to, to African people and black people. And to be sure here, this didn't only affect Africans too. There were concerns expressed by the United States Consulate General in Guangzhou that African Americans were also subject to some of this. So this was not uniquely about Africans. But there was never an apology to civil society for what happened. And I think in many ways, I'd like to get your take very quickly looking back on this, that that's one of the lasting legacies of all of this is that the Chinese government went out of his way to make sure that African governing elites understood and there was expressions of remorse, regret. There was all this done to African, at the African Union, to the Nigerian foreign ministry and whatnot, all throughout governing elites. But we did not see President Xi Jinping or Foreign Minister Wang Yi get up on TV or in the media, in a social media post and say, you know what, we are brothers. We've always said we are brothers. The Chinese use the words xiongdi, 
to describe their relationship with Africa. And brothers don't treat brothers that way. What, they, what happened in Guangzhou was our family got a little bit carried away in the enforcement. COVID-19 makes us all a little bit crazy. We apologize for what that happened. It will not happen again. That never happened. And it seems to me in the legacy of all this, looking back, that has left a bitter taste in a lot of people's mouths since then. Kobus, looking back now on all of that happened and what we just kind of went through and talked to, what is your kind of reflection on the, the Guangzhou incidents as they're now being called? I think they they will end up, you know, kind of really being marked as this kind of, uh, not a, not maybe not a breaking point, but a kind of an inflection point in, in China-Africa relations. I think, you know, it, it, it made clear that, that for all of the talk of people-to-people exchange, the, really the China-Africa relationship really is based on elite-elite relationships and that there isn't particularly... Um, you know, kind of, there doesn't seem to be much bandwidth or tools in Chinese diplomacy to really communicate with with the the broader population in in Africa. I think it was also a, a moment where Nigeria really stepped forward in you know in in kind of representing kind of African voices in lots of ways, and you know, kind of and and you know something that was again then kind of like doubled down on during the end SARS protests later that the same year. So I think it was a really an interesting moment of of Nigerian leadership. In, in relation to the, the entire African continent and China's relationship. So I did a little bit longer introduction today to set this story up, in part because it's a very complicated story, much more nuanced than I think a lot of people a- a- appreciate it to be. And I wanted to make sure that we really brought back all of the incidents that happened in April so we can reflect on them. And today, it's really a, just a true honor of mine to bring on the Black Livity team, which is an amazing site dedicated to all aspects of the African diaspora and black experience in China. It's an absolutely essential resource for anybody interested in both African and black life in China. We're so honored to have two of the site's creative minds to join us on the line for our discussion today. Renako Selina is the co-founder and co-manager of Black Livity China. She's also a journalist and content creator with a graduate degree in international politics and African studies from Peking University. Normally, she lives in Beijing, but due to the COVID-19 travel restrictions, she joins us from her home in UK. A very good morning to you, Renako. Hi, Eric. Hi, Kovas. Thank you for having us. It's wonderful to have you. And we're also thrilled to have one of your colleagues, Saren Tamarat, who is also a co-manager at Black Livity China. She lived in Guangzhou for five years. Uh, When she was a student at South China University of Technology, she was the president of the African Student Association and also worked closely with the African Guangdong Business Association. Like Renako, she's also currently outside of China, back home in Addis Ababa. A very good morning to you. Good morning, Kobus. Good morning, Eric. We're very happy to be able to join you guys today. It's really great to have you here to be able to reflect on this really important year in China-Africa relations. Both of you have lived in China for a very, very long time, although you're currently outside of China. Both of you do want to return, and you will run this amazing site, Black Livity, where a lot of the discussion within the Black and African diaspora communities was going on about what happened in Guangzhou. Runako, I'd like to start with you, and Saren, I want to get your take right afterwards to reflect on 2020 and the year in what happened, you know, anchored in this event in, in April. Yeah, um, I think the introduction that you gave there was really, really crucial and touched on so many important points. Um, It really has been a year that has redefined our community's understanding of the importance of agency and the importance of amplifying our perspectives. Because I think when the incident happened, it was kind of... um, 
it was kind of like just a reminder of the skewed nature of the coverage um, and the the fact that, you know, our voices are not frequently heard um, and why that's so important, because without it, you know, without the video evidence, without some of these clips, um, I think a lot of people don't know the way um, that we ended up rolling out a lot of this information and a lot of this news. Um, firstly, it was because Saron was obviously based in Guangzhou. Um, and secondly, because, you know, when things like this happen as a community, you look for the greatest uh, way to, to kind of make your voice heard. Um, and so we had people sending us videos and sending us stories of what was happening um, on the ground. And you know, first of all, this conversation happened internally. We were speaking to our professors, we were speaking to, you know, our colleagues um, and trying to understand what can be done directly on the ground. And once that kind of uh, ran dry, if I'm honest, um, in the sense of um, a lot of denial, a lot of d lack of belief, no, this can't be happening. No, it's not because of this. It's because of this. And, you know, it's, it's not even true. Um, in some instances, um, the, the second best way it was felt was to take this public and, and, and let people know on the outside. And I think there is this lasting opinion within the community, um, even to this day, um, that without that change, without that kind of global awareness of what was happening, things would not have changed in the way that they did. Um, and so I think as we reflect on our year as a platform, um, if there's one thing that we are proud of doing, it's of, of really, um, you know, put pushing that home. And I think there's one other thing just to add there as well. What we did, the th first thing, one of the first things that we did when this uh, started to happen was to put together a timeline of events, um, really thorough looking at how things were reported from within the community because obviously when the rest of the world got this information was very different to when we understood what was happening on the ground and we're looking at I think as you mentioned um March so the, the end days of March and actually we're looking at beyond Guangzhou even we're looking at racist instance, incidents that were happening um as early as March 24th for example um and I think that is so important to note because I think sometimes we start the discussion with the incident with the Nigerian brother who had unfortunately had that incident with the nurse um, but actually even before this there were these there were these issues that were, were taking place so Renako has spoken so eloquently on the matter and it was truly a, an event that was very it was some for a lot of people who are on the ground including myself it felt uh, it felt like an event it was a lot of people have previously experienced incidents of racism and ex experienced situations that are not necessarily the best, but this was just something that was like, okay, this is to another level. This is very extreme, right? And a lot of people don't actually realize that it started way earlier, like, like Kronako said. It, it wasn't an incident where it was like, everybody's going to be put into mass quarantine it started with okay everybody's going to get tested and then even though everyone had been tested it it, it came to be okay everybody's going to get quarantined and then that created a sense of fear and mistrust within the community that previously already existed so when the local government was doing all this it for a lot of people it felt like they didn't really consider the fraught relationship the African community has with the local people because there really is a lot of mistrust. So this incident just really worked 
on that to amplify the the complexity of the relationship between these two communities. So it's really left such a a lasting impact on the community where it's like, how are we going to move forward from this and ensure that such an event is not going to happen again? Um, Saren, following up on that, um, what was it like to be on the ground in Guangzhou while all of this was happening? Like, like you know, what was the, the scene you were seeing as you were walking around? Like I said, it started with the announcement that a lot of people were being tested. So there wasn't really an announcement where someone said, okay, we're going to test everybody. It, it was your school. Where for international students, African students were being selected and then they were being informed, okay, you guys have to be tested. And then there was this question of why only African students? For other people who are, uh, you know, residents who are possibly working in Guangzhou, it was an incident of maybe your landlord will contact you or your property management will contact you and they'll say, we've been informed that you need to be tested. Right. So at this time, uh, doctors are going to come to your house. So at first it wasn't it was like, this is strange. Why are we the only ones who are being tested? But it wasn't something that was very um, it was I don't know how to say it. It wasn't something that was alarming. And then all of a sudden, after the tests come back and a lot of people had been cleared, it was said that people are going to be put in quarantine. And again, it wasn't announced. It was just that people were showing up at your house and telling you, okay, the local government has said you have to be put in quarantine, so we're going to quarantine you in your house. Or it's like you're going to be taken to a quarantine hotel. And then students who live on campus were being told, okay, you can't leave your dorms, but the other international students can that's when the mayhem started to set in. And then that's when the news that many people who are, um, especially the people that were affected the most, were people who were de- there doing business because many hotels were turning them out. They were saying, okay, you can't stay here. And then um, that was when mayhem and panic really started to set in. And there was a lot of confusion because there was nothing officially announced about what was happening, but people were calling each other. And all these WeChat groups where um, foreigners are in are, you know, saying like, oh, they just came to my house and I've been told this or I've been taken to a quarantine hotel. So what made it really scary was the fact that there was really no official announcement. It was just something that was happening to you. You'd get a knock at on your door at like 11 p.m. and they'll tell you, okay, you're being put into quarantine. So it was definitely very scary for a lot of people. Munako, one of the takeaways that Kobus and I got from a year of talking to lots of different people about this, both in Africa and also in China, and I'd like to get your take on it, was on the African side, there was a lot of people who expressed this sense of disappointment. And it really was, in some ways, an end of innocence in the China-Africa relationship. Kobus talked about an inflection point. I, I mentioned at the time that this was a rupture. It's not a break. A rupture is when there's a leak, and it, it really is a problem, but it's not a break. And what it was was because for 20 years, the Chinese have been saying to Africa, we are, again, as I mentioned at the top, we are your brothers. We, too, are the victims of European colonialism. We, too, are a developing country. We too have overcome many of the same challenges that you are dealing with today. And as brothers, we have, we respect you. And so all of the violence against black bodies and black people in the United States and in Europe, there was the sense, okay, in China, there may be discrimination, but it's never as blatant as what we see in the US and Europe. 
And then this happened, and the way that the Chinese responded in very, again, classic Chinese fashion, very tough, very aggressive, very government-to-government, governing elites, denial, there was no discrimination. And it left, again, a lot of people feeling like, you know what, okay, you're just like everybody else. You know what, you're no different than, than anybody else. And in this year of George Floyd and Black Lives Matter. And the, again, we just saw this in France a couple of weeks ago where the French police beat to a pulp a on video. I think it was a producer of some kind. And again, it's been normalized that violence against black people is something that we've become numb to in the United States and Europe in many respects because it happened so often. And here it happened in China. And that, again, it just made China a big part of everything else in that cynicism that a lot of people have about the outside world China became a part of that. That was what we heard quite a bit. I'd like you to kind of talk about your reflections on this in the context of Black Lives Matter and what we've seen in other places of 2020. Mm, I think that's a really interesting point, actually, because one thing that we saw quite frequently, you know, if you think about the preceding month, if you think about March, uh, February, we had grand displays from so many within our community. Uh, we had people writing in to us saying that they wanted to share a video that they made. Wuhan Jiayo, you know, that was the big, the big statement. Um, and Africans... And, and that means go Africans, Wuhan. Right, I should have, I should have said. Um, but, uh, you know, Africans were on the front line of that support. Um, very vocal about it. And I think even just as things were happening in, in Guangzhou, because news took a, a while to spread to every, you know, every uh, wing of the community, if you like, uh, you still had so many of these displays. And so it was kind of a bit of a slap in the face. I mean, and don't get me wrong, I think what we always like to portray is our community were very much aware of uh, some of the more problematic natures of this relationship and some of the imbalances that exist. And it's something that is the constant topic of discussion within the community, right? Um, but if anything, this further, like you said, uh, drove this wedge and kind of um, was, a, was a very solid reminder that I don't think is going to go away anytime soon, to be honest, at least not in a community context. And I think also, so that was the early days, right, the beginning and, and why it hurt even more, perhaps. Uh, but if you look at the ending as well, or uh, the kind of handling of it, managing of it since then, that was another issue because, you know, when Black Lives Matter protests started to happen in June, we saw China, you know, really going in on um, the situation, the conversation and uh, I mean, Chinese platforms, you know, China Daily, the CGTNs. I mean, there were some very graphic uh, cartoons that came out um, really depicting the murder. There was even one that depicted the murder of George Floyd. And for many people, it was kind of, you know, do you see us as anything more than pawns in this war against the United States? Uh, because clearly you did not acknowledge our suffering and our pain and, and, and everything that happened within our community um, because we didn't even receive an apology. Um and there were, you know, that there were different ideas around how complicit local government was in the events in, in Guangzhou. So, for example, in many of the videos, I think one of them that we subtitled um, online, you know, the, the, the people who were sent out to install these alarms to stop many Africans leaving their houses or to, um, to force them to take these extra tests, sometimes two, three, four tests. Um, whenever you ask them, you know, who's telling you to do this? They would say my higher ups, but it was very vague. And so despite the fact that this has been described away or explained away as kind of like a bit of a confusion on a, on a ground level, a few, maybe a few rogue employees or whatever, 
you know, there's this systemic distrust now. It's a bit bigger than just, oh, I had, you know, I experienced a racist incident um, on this day and that's it. No, it's kind of more of a of a system that, that people are viewing. And when we speak, obviously, about systemic racism and stuff, you know, we know where, where this language comes from. And so despite the fact that we acknowledge the difference between um, what we see in the West and this um, and white supremacy and this, the system that underpins it all, um, it was just too close to home for many who are used to seeing that in the US, but not so close uh, as in, in China within the community. So. Yeah, very, very uh, stark um, similarities, I'd say. Saren, what was the kind of reaction that you saw once you got back to Addis Ababa? Like, were people following this, this, this story and, you know, kind of what, what, how did it kind of shape their, their view of, of, you know, being, being African in China? Something a lot of people said to me was definitely, oh, thank God you got out of there. And it was, uh, another one was like, oh, you should never go back. Why would you want to go back there? And so it definitely really left such a negative impact on the community and people in the motherland because it someone I remember this conversation. I was having this conversation with someone who works in a Chinese company and then they were telling me, oh, this is why I've decided I'm going to quit my job. And I'm like, why are you quitting your job? I really don't understand. And then this person said, be it whether you're there or you're here, it's never good. It really is never good. So it's, I, this experience is going to go down for a very long time as something that has really created a rip in the Africa-China relationship. Saren, I'm, I'm very glad you brought that up in terms of the perceptions, in part because in the ensuing eight months since then, uh, there's been a lot of discussion, a lot of people talking about it, but it seems that a lot of the framing of what happened in Guangzhou is done through a very U.S.-European narrative perspective. And this is a main point that one of uh, one of our favorite scholars, Roberto Castillo, who's an assistant professor at Lingnan University in Hong Kong, he's coming out with a new book on it. He's really one of the leading experts on the African diaspora in southern China. And he talks a lot about how it's, there's big misperceptions because this is understood through the filter of black history in the United States and black history in Europe, which is a very different history than what's in China. And there's a sense among, particularly among whites in U.S. and Europe, of saying to China, see, you're no better than we are. And there's this kind of like, you know, comeuppance. And I know it's interesting because in a lot of the webinars and the panels that we've had about China-Africa relations in the past year, it comes up mostly from whites and Americans and Europeans bringing up the Guangzhou kind of situation rather than Africans. Africans, I get the sense from just the discussions that we've had, have processed it, moved on, the cynicism's there, all the things that you guys have talked about. It's like, yeah, you know what? If I got that upset over every time there was discrimination, then we wouldn't get anything done. But yet it seems to be that the narrative in the post-Guangzhou era is being shaped in part by perceptions from the global north, if you will. Renako, I'd like to get your take on that. Yeah, no, I do think that's a, um, an interesting point because there definitely was a sense um, of, you know, being treated as pawns almost um, to, to a degree, I'd say, because actually, again, with this timeline that we created, the news spread within the community first and to, you know, family, friends outside of the community second. And so it wasn't actually the, the way that 
kind of a lot of Chinese media try to paint things as um, as if China, as, as if the Western press had kind of created this story. I don't see it to be completely accurate. Um, but I would say that, yes, this history that exists of racism um, in, in the West, it's very difficult to separate sometimes, especially for scholars that come from that part of the world um, and media from that, part, from that part of the world also, because, you know, there wasn't any other story that kind of blew up in the same way as this. Um, and although it, it needed to in order for it to stop, it does kind of make you question. Um, although I think the other thing I would say to this is that, you know, in the handling of this whole issue, China had a real opportunity to say, OK, hands up, we messed up, um, but we are going to handle this differently. Um, instead of the kind of, it was a kind of community-wide gaslighting, you know, like we can see what's happening to us. We have friends, we have family who are in Guangzhou, in Guangdong even, and even in other cities who this is happening to. And you are telling us that this is not happening. Our eyes are deceiving us. Uh, what we're being told is, 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 you know, not factual. And I think that was a failing because... Any narrative that comes from a more Western angle that kind of tries to portray um, things as even worse as maybe they were could have been shot down very easily had a different approach been taken. So there are failings across the board, I think, there. Um, And again, the main community takeaway here has been, you know, we can't necessarily trust I mean, I remember at the time, sorry to go off on a, a bit of a tangent, but I remember at the time there were so many media requests coming in. And I remember Saron and I, we were discussing a bit and we, we kind of felt at first it was like, yes, this is a great thing. Like, it's great that people are paying an interest. But, you know, how close is this concern? Um, and, and what is the intention behind some of these stories, perhaps, especially because most of them are coming in from the West? Um so it, it's a it's a very complicated line to walk, um, really. But again, it stresses the need for internal voices, uh, community voices, who are able to kind of steer um, steer a line that is more focused from within, as opposed to focusing on you know we know the histories that exist separately in the West and in China. We know the way that our communities have related with these two different entities, um, but you know, what, what serves us and, and what is the realities um, of our communities as opposed to anyone else. Sarun, what did you make of the role of Nigeria in all of this? Like, it, it struck me that the Chinese officials were very ready to just kind of brush it off and sweep it under the carpet and move along. And that's kind of what they did anyway in the end. But, you know, but but they, they were really forced to address it only, I think, because because Nigeria put itself out there so much and Nigerian, individual Nigerian officials were really pushing the issue, you know, including, you know, the the, the video that, that Eric played earlier of, of you know, actually the having that moment moment of, of make you know kind of, of forcing an answer from a Chinese ambassador on on video um you know it, it, it struck me that that Nigeria was really taking a, a, a playing a special role here and was wondering what you thought of that um for me and for a lot of people a lot of people when Mr. Razak Dayo Lawel spoke up and was fighting for the rights of the people whose passports had um, unlawfully been confiscated, that was the first time where people felt like, okay, you know, there are people here who are actually going to stand up for our rights. Because until that time, 
a lot of the people more in the let's say in the in positions of um for like policy making and of people who formulate these relationships had been quiet and then after that that was when the african uh, union spoke up and then other uh leaders started to speak up but for a lot of people Mr. Razak Dayolawel was such an important figure in this event that has transpired so much so that he was awarded the African man of the year uh which which is uh an award awarded by Pride of Africa where people within the community the community in China the African community in China vote on people who they think played such an important role um every year so it's a yearly award and he was the person that was chosen as African man of the year and i think this award just shows goes to show how much mr what mr lowell did uh, how much of an impression it left in people i'm glad you you mentioned mr lowell and i i apologize at the top of the show i think i misspoke in terms of the name of the, the nigerian consul general it was in fact mr lowell and i'm glad you brought up this question of uh, you know Kobus talking about the nigerian response in bibkart because one of the key takeaways of this and again there was a lot of positive that came out of this as well so we don't only want to focus on the negative so i want to change the tone of our conversation a little bit now to focus on some of the positive things that came out First, this was really something that we saw the, a pan-African response. And one point that our, our good friend in Beijing at the African-led development consultancy, Development Reimagined, she's the CEO there, Hannah Ryder, she talks about a lot in the discussions on this was that this was really one of the first times that the diplomatic community in China from across the African Union came together with a united voice, consul generals, ambassadors, and whatnot. And that was something we haven't really seen very much before. And so talk about the pan-Africanism that emerged from this, Renako, in terms of the, the perceptions of how to express a unified voice, not only on behalf of states and governments, but also all the various different levels of the African diaspora in China. So again, we have a trading community, an academic community, an expatriate community, a business community, so many different layers. And it felt like in many ways, we saw for the first time African diplomats and representatives really speaking in one voice to the Chinese and representing the continent as a whole. And that was very exciting to watch. Yeah, uh, again, I think that was really the, um, yeah, there's a silver lining really for us, I think, because from the very beginning, there was this kind of community mobilization that existed. Um, a lot of people, again, don't know, but on the on the ground, as things were happening, as people were kind of being removed from hotels and um, having nowhere to stay, the initial efforts to assist the community were started by Black Americans and other Nigerians within the community. And later, we had Chinese friends kind of assisting those efforts. But from the very beginning, there was this mass mobilization. And I think this is something that has been the topic of many a group chat discussion, but uh, it's, you know, when you come from your various hometowns and, and, and countries and you meet in a place like uh, China, identity really starts to shift and you start to understand a bit more for many people. Again, I'm not going to assume this, this is the case for everyone, but so many of the people that I've met in my seven years so far have expressed this feeling of uh, unity and kind of um, re-analyzing, re I guess, um, your identity in relation as, as you relate to other people of African descent, other Africans, other black people. Um, and as these kind of barriers, I guess, shift, um, and as you start to, to, to feel as part of a whole, um, you know, 
you begin to whenever one person or one group within the community is impacted so for example if the majority of people in the Grand Jury incident who were impacted at least with the um, evictions were businessmen everyone from the students you know to the young professionals um, all kind of rallied behind and said this has to stop and then again just as you mentioned uh, slightly earlier when we look at the response side so when we look at how um, the group of African ambassadors in Beijing um, chose to handle this issue there was the formulation of a letter um, but what was more important than the formulation of the letter I felt personally was that they consulted you know uh, there's an amazing student at Beida that I, Peking, sorry, that I used to study with, um, called Mendu Joseph Mendu, and he plays a role as a bridge now. He's doing his PhD. He's a Cameroonian student, uh, and what he often ends up doing, especially when things like this happens, is connecting the student community, the just your the the lay community, if you like, um, with the group of African ambassadors and. There was a roundtable discussion that happened looking at everything from media to um, the issues of, of housing on the ground um, to finances and who still needed you know, assistance. And these uh, kind of findings, if you like, were taken back to the ambassadors. And I thought this was really important because sometimes the discussion can feel very segmented and separated. You know, there's a discussion happening at this uh, power level, if you like, between the ambassadors. And then there's the discussion that's happening within the community. Um, but this is one of, in my, in my seven years at least, I think maybe the second time um, that that has been shifted slightly and there has been more of a connection. Um, and there have been some promising moves towards that. You know, when things like this happen within a community, you start to think to yourself, right, we need a body, we need someone, we need a group or an organisation that can really represent us more, um, uh, with, with a bit more kind of unity, I guess. Um, and in 2019, I know this was the year before, but there was also the efforts made in part by Kenti and Silk and others to um, have the African Union have a diaspora organisation, um, recognised by the African Union, sorry. And so I think it's been a gradual process and this has just kind of pushed it, it forwards um, slightly. Saren, it sounds to me that that this um, sense of community that um, that Renaka was was mentioning is is also very present on Black Liberty, um, you know, and also in the way that it pulls together voices from so many different diasporas, including Caribbean diasporas. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about Black Liberty, how it started, and, and what what your mission was with it. Well, Black Liberty very much is a community oriented platform for us. What we really try to aim to do is give a voice to the people who are on the ground, who are living these lives. Because the way Black Liberty China came to be is we were having this discussion about the experience, the different experiences everybody has, right? And we were kind of talking about how Africa-China relations and even Af Caribbean-China relationship is often framed. And so much so, a lot of the discussion centers around um, Africa-China watchers, uh, West, uh, Westerners, and but there was no one really who was talking to the people who are on the ground, who are studying, working in China, um, young Africans who are in the motherland who work with these huge Chinese companies that are coming in for different reasons. Nobody's really taking 
talking to them to get their take and to share their stories. So we were like, well, maybe we can bring this perspective of the people who are doing these things because there are so many amazing, young, talented Africans, individuals, teams, platforms that are working to really shape and uh bring a new narrative to the Africa-China relationship because there's so much that is unknown about the experiences people are having. So this was what we were really trying to do. And we really want to be able to be a community platform where people can come um, just share their experiences, be, be whether it's more cultural, whether it's more um, policy-oriented. We just want to give a more nuanced view of what life is like in China and in relation to China in terms of the African diaspora community. And that's what's so unfortunate about what happened in Guangzhou is that the perceptions are, as you mentioned, Saren, that from your experiences back in Addis, that people said, you know, this is a hellhole, you should get out. And it really kind of framed for a lot of people that this, what happened in Guangzhou at that particular moment in April is what happens across all of China. Saren, I'd first like to get your input on this, and then Renako, if you could share your insights on this about black life in China. Saren, you lived in Guangzhou. Guangzhou has a very rich, deep history that's extraordinarily complicated with black, African, and Caribbean people who live there, residents who live there. It's a port city. It's a trading hub. But what happens in Guangzhou is not necessarily representative of what happens across the country in cities like Iwu and Zhejiang province, in Shanghai, in Beijing, in Xi'an, in Changsha, where there are also quite a few uh, very robust African communities. Talk to us a little bit about some of the, the experiences that you're sharing on Black Livity about the different Black experiences across China. Saren, let's start with you. Renako, I'd like to get your take on that afterwards. That's a very good question, Eric. And I'm so glad you brought up Yiwu because oftentimes when people think of a large collection of African bodies in China, they just think of Guangzhou. But that's not necessarily true because we have Yiwu, which is another city that has such a large, thriving African community in it. And a lot of the times people want to contrast Guangzhou, like life in Guangzhou versus life in Yiwu. And it's not as simple as that, because when we're having these discussions of what it means to be African in China, African <clears throat> you have to look at the different bodies of experience people are having, right? Because your experience in a first-tier city is definitely not going to be the same as your experience in a third-tier city. Your experience uh, as a student is going to be very different as uh, from a person who's going to have an experience, maybe if they're there as an expat. Um, your experience, if you're there short-term, is going to be very different versus if you're there long-term. So all of these just very greatly influence your experience. Also, another issue that often is not addressed is... Uh, your experience as a woman is going to be very different from your experience as a man. So we have to really consider all of these. And as a platform, what we try to do is we try to be a place where people can share all these different experiences because they are so nuanced, right? And Guangzhou, like you said, has such a rich history because it's, of course, it is the city that has the largest um, African population in China. And 
Guangzhou has had incidents in the past where um, there have been flares of, how do I put this, um, maybe unfortunate events in the past as well. Nothing as big as what happened in April, but all of these really have formed such a very intricate and complex relationship between uh, the local community and um, the African community. So again, what I want people to keep in mind is your experience is going to be very different across the board for very different, for very variety of, for many variety of reasons. Renako, can you share your perceptions of the different experiences in different Chinese cities? Yeah, no. Um, I mean, seven years, Beijing, um, the whole time. So definitely I'm aware of the differences and, and you can kind of very closely see um, your treatment sometimes can be very different uh, depending on where you go, um, where you travel through. Um, I've, I, I've had some experiences in Guangzhou that I, I just didn't expect at all um, simply because, you know, of the fact that there's such a large community in Guangzhou. And sometimes actually that can mean that your experience uh, is, is a bit more negative than in somewhere like Beijing where, yes, we're a sizable community, there's a lot of us, but um, because it's a bit of a less politicised, I guess, community there, um, you know, your experience with local people is not always going to be as loaded and there's not always going to be this... Um, don't get me wrong, there are still <laughs> issues sometimes, um, but definitely there are differences. And I think it's the awareness of this that is um, is so important, just as, as Saron said, because sometimes we speak about China as one whole. Um, and especially as this was happening, there wasn't a real understanding within our communities outside of China that these things were happening in one particular place primarily. Um, it was just... China, you know, and that's why we kind of try and break it down into different cities and different regions and say, you know, um, in this particular place, you're going to see X and you're going to see this. So, for example, we're really interested in charting how the diasporas look differently um, in Wuhan, for example. If you go to Wuhan, it's very much student focused. There are several universities, um, lots of Congolese students, lots of Zambian students. Um, if you go to Hangzhou, um, you've got loads of Zimbabwean students. And oftentimes, because, you know, when you choose to go to China as a student, oftentimes you're going because someone else has sent for you, someone else has told you about that university, and that's the way communities build. So it's very interesting outside of, like, what we know from statistics given given by the Chinese government um, around numbers um, of African students coming to China, for example. It's very interesting to look at it from a community and inside perspective and see how these communities manifest differently on the ground. Um, so there are, there are a massive differences. Obviously, everyone knows about Guangzhou uh, and, it, and its history. Um, but it's, it's very, very interesting to compare the experiences elsewhere. And I think the, the probably the final thing that I'd add there was that when we were creating this platform, we felt that it was super important for our communities on the outside to understand this because, you know, everything that happens between Africa-China relations, um, Caribbean-China relations impacts people before it impacts anything else. Uh, you know, we often hear about the policies, we often hear about the uh, bilateral relations and everything that's happening on the government to government level but when it comes to people on the ground and the more human experiences and perspectives that is crucial to really uh gain a, a full picture of what's happening and that is something that is 
is, is lacking. And when I speak to family members um, about China and about the, the, the black in China or experience, if you like, um, that is always the, the, the bit of the disconnect. And that's the gap that really needs to be, um, needs to be filled, we, we feel. Over the last year or two, um, among others because of the, the, the work of scholars like Lina Ben Abdallah, we've seen a lot more focus on the role of training and education in, in Africa-China relations. Um, and a lot of hand-wringing from Western um, Western diplomats that, oh, you know, kind of the fact that there's so many China, you know, African students in China means that that they now will, you know, be kind of inculcated in some way with a kind of with a Chinese worldview. Um, I wonder if both of you, maybe um, Saren starting and then Runako, um, if you could reflect a little on on how studying in in China. Um, has has shaped your worldview and whether whether there is a, a kind of a you know kind of whether there is a any kind of like reality of a kind of a, a moving towards a more chinese worldview for me it's actually formed this uh idea of that the young africans who are going to china to study are really going to play such an important role in the future of the africa china relationship because for me it's definitely been such a wake up call as to like there are these gaps that need to be filled and it's us the people who have had the experience of having the opportunity to have lived in China and then again to be from Africa who can really fill these gaps so whether it's more economical it's cultural it's uh, policy oriented I really do believe that these gaps and these bridges are going to be bridged by young Africans who are educated in uh, China. Because I meet so many African students who tell me, you know, I'm so glad I came here because it's made me realize that there's this gap that I can fill. So I've learned this from China and I'm going to take it back to Africa and I'm going to ensure that our interests are front and center to ensuring that it, it's going to go this way so that we are benefiting. So this is happening in so many different spheres. So I, for me, it's, I think this is a great positive. I'm one of those people that says um, the large number of African students who are flocking to China are going to play such an important role in the future. Yeah, um, it's, it's, it's an interesting one, isn't it? Because I definitely do think there's a lot of focus, especially in the West, on the intention behind the scholarships and the mass push towards education. Um, and while there may be merit in some of these arguments, education overall is a, is a net plus. Um, and I think, you know, one of the things, every time someone asks me what kept you coming back, I think, again, just as Saron has kind of said, it's the community because I've never met such a dynamic uh, diaspora. I've been in diasporas in many different, uh, you know, continents even. But within this community, there is an understanding that with Africa, you know, China's kind of increasing role in the continent and the Caribbean, um, it's really important that we understand um, the cultures that China represents, the, the, the kind of ways of doing business, the mindset, the worldview, as you said, um, and using that for our countries, our communities, our peoples, our families' benefits. Um, and so one thing that often frustrates me is that, and even again within other 
African diaspora communities, even over here, the language sometimes that we use to describe Africa-China relations is, is very passive. Um, but what we try and showcase is the exact opposite, because although sometimes there is this power imbalance at play, um, there are so many young Africans on the ground who are using their experience to benefit um, their communities at home. And I think that's a really, really important point. And I think another thing um, as well there, so with my study background, so I studied um, at Peking, but I studied the Chinese taught program. And I think I like to make that distinction because uh, the insight that it gives you. So I'm studying international politics at PKU, which is known to kind of, I mean, it's 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 been home to some of the ambassadors and, and, and future leaders of China. And sitting in that environment, you get such a crucial insight into the um, the ways that, I guess, China is training its next generation of young leaders. Um, and when I think about my fellow kind of African students are, or who also had a very similar study experience um, and studied in this kind of environment, Chinese taught programs alongside Chinese um, students, as, as sometimes as the only one in the classroom, I just think this, you know, their knowledge and their insights are going to be crucial. And they're aware of that as well. They're not walking into this blind. They choose these paths um, for that reason many, many a time. Um, when I think about worldview, finally, I'd probably say, you know, you take your experience with you. So if you have a positive experience in China, which many do, um, you will take that home and you will, you know, you'll tell everyone the, the positives of an education in China and of life in China and the positives to take away and learn from Chinese culture and traditions and uh, the way things are done. Um, but similarly, equally, if you have negative experiences, you will take that home also. And before you even leave Chinese borders, you know, you're still going to take that home. You're still going to message home, let people know what's going on, just as we've seen in the Guangzhou incidents. That's how things spread. And so, you know, it is what we make it ultimately. If we're having negatives, we're going to take that home and we're going to tell people as well. And we've seen that some of the most vocal voices um about Africa-China relations, again, from more of a community perspective, um, are people who exist, lived on the ground and now are sharing their experiences. If you look at someone like Wadamaya, for example, uh, he was an African student, just like, you know, we've just spoken about, um, and he's gone on to kind of pre present quite a nuanced view that really speaks to the heart of so many within the community. Um, and so we can expect that there will be more people in different industries playing very similar roles. And it's something that we welcome and, and champion and have done since we, we started in 2018. And those of you who are not familiar with Wadamaya, he is a Ghanaian YouTuber who lived in China for six years. He's become very, very successful. Look on our website. We did a wonderful interview with Wadamaya about these complex views that he has on Africa-China relations and race relations and civil society and all these different things. So I'm glad you brought up Wadamaya. He's a fantastic a voice in all of this. Let's wrap up our discussion with just some, some reflections. Now, correct me if I'm wrong. You Both of you said you want to go back to China, correct? Yeah, that's correct. That's correct. <laughs> and Sarah, and you too. You wanna, you, one day you want to find yourself back in China. Possibly. Okay, possibly. That's good. What do you want people to to take away from both the twenty, the year that was in twenty twenty, and then looking ahead in terms of Black life in China, civil society relations, Black Chinese relations, all the different topics that we've talked about. If you can kind of sum up the takeaway, what do you want people to to learn from this year? Yeah, I think Eric. You know. 
when we have kind of looked back at this year, the key takeaway for us has been agency. Um, I mean, I think within our community, there was an acknowledgement that this was so important. Um, but this year, if anything, has just driven that home and it continues to do so. Um, so if there's anything that I'd say we'd want people to take um, is number one, our communities, our, you know, people of African descent in China are not passive in this relationship. Um, there is effort, there are several efforts underway to ensure that this relationship benefits um, African people, people of African descent as much as possible. Um, and I think that's a very important takeaway. And then secondly, I'd say um, that going forward, there will be an expectation now that we've broken that barrier, now that we've seen these very public dis displays um, of kind of, you know, standing up almost for the community. I think there will be an expectation whether or not it happens, but there's an expectation from a community perspective that we're not going back to this kind of silent community that for many it felt like we were perceived to be um, for a very long time. Um, so it's really just the upliftment of community perspectives and voices, not a single one because we understand that we are so diverse and that's why it's so important to present this um, kind of multifaceted and a very diverse uh, a view um, but it's 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 really that to be honest I think that is the key takeaway and that's something that we'll be looking for um, in the in the new year um, my key takeaway definitely is the need for agency but other than that it's also the need for nuance we really need to focus on just we need to go down to the roots and understand why certain things are the way they are um, something that this year has definitely taught me is um, people, like a lot of people have said to me, so the reason you left China is because Chinese people are racist, right? No, that's not the reason I decided to come back home. So I want people to understand that just because certain things might be framed this way, that's not necessarily how they are. Just like Ronako said, um, there are different experiences and that's what I want people to understand. Nuance is very key in this situation, just so um, that's what I want people to take away. Okay, Saren Tamarat is the co-manager of Black Liberty China. Runaku Selina is the co-founder and also a co-manager of Black Liberty China. Thank you both for taking the time to really explain this, unpack it. It's a very complicated story that few really understand as well as you do. We really want to make sure that people know about Black Liberty and all the amazing content and services and discussions that you have. Uh, Runako, tell us where people can find it and what you offer and all the different social media channels that you have. Yeah, thank you very much, Eric. Um, so, I mean, when we started in 2018, we were primarily a website, which is blacklibertychina.com, B-L-A-C-K-L-I-V-I-T-Y-China.com. Um, to date, though, we are all about community engagement. Um, and outside of our team, um, who are very diverse, but outside of our team, we try and court the opinions of our community. And so the best way to do that is social media. So you can find us on Instagram, um, Instagram.com forward slash Black Liberty China again. Um, we are on Twitter, Black Liberty CN. Um, and we are also on YouTube um, where we will be releasing increasing video content that again tries to amplify community perspectives both in China and in relation to China. So in our countries of origin, which is something that we're extremely excited about introducing um, to 
you know, in, in, the, in the year that follows, because uh, this conversation that happens within the community in China means a lot, but it doesn't mean as much as it could do if we linked it and connected it to communities at home as well. Um, so that is what people can look forward to. Yeah. And if people want to get in touch with you directly, are, Saren, are you on Twitter? Uh, yes, I am on Twitter. It's Saren underscore Tamarat, T-A-M-E-R-A-T. So Saren underscore Tamarat. And Runako, are you on Twitter? Yeah, that is um, Renako Selina. So no space. So R-U-N-A-K-O-C-E-L-I-N-A. I will put links to both of their Twitter accounts and also all of the Black Liberty channels that Runako went through in the show notes. You'll find that on our site. Uh, it is, again, an absolutely invaluable resource. Renako Selina, thank you so much for joining us, Aaron Tamrat. We really appreciate your insights. And again, we're looking forward to following all of your coverage in 2021. Thank you so much. And thank you for having us, Eric and Kovis. This is um, an amazing platform and somewhere that we also frequently consult. So thank you. Thank you so much. We really appreciate it. You, we love your work. It was really an honor to be able to talk to you and Kovis. Kobus, this was the most textured, nuanced discussion on the issue that we've had all year about it. And we've talked a lot about China Black, China Africa, race relations, cultural assimilation, all of that. And Saren's point is the most interesting that I want to kind of focus on at the end when she talked about the nuance that's required. And that nuance has been missing in so much of the international media coverage and the discussions afterwards where it's... You know, China's racist. See what happened in Guangzhou. And that was the key point that Saren made, that I think it's, it's far more complicated than that, that African and black life, Caribbean life in China is super complicated, just like racial issues anywhere are. And to boil it down to one experience in one city in one month is such a critical mistake that a lot of observers make. Yeah, it's it's really, you know, kind of you need to you need to look at the texture of the lives of the experiences over years um, and how those contributed to this this particular kind of crisis point. You know, it's, it's as as they, they pointed out, things have been happening for a while before the world started noticing. And you know, so so for that reason I think it's also really the, the, their work is so important because it provides this kind of community voice, you know, to to keep to keep noting these things as they come up. It's, it's really, they work is so impressive to me. And the difficulty is understanding this from a Chinese perspective because too often, as Roberto Castillo points out, is that this is seen through a filter of a global north filter, predominantly a U.S.-European view on race. And that is very, very difficult to do. One of the key points to remember is that China is largely a mono-ethnic society. This is a culture that is 92, 93% ethnically Han. And as a result, they don't have a very sophisticated understanding of multiculturalism, uh, interracial dialogue, and, and dealing with minority populations of all sorts. It is, it's very difficult for a majority population that is 92% of anything to be able to understand. And it's funny because, you know, as an American, I see this a lot in the white population in the United States. Well, they'll say, I'm not racist. And this is something called the Northern Paradox. I just learned this, you know, reading a book on this, where they'll say, I'm not racist but I just don't want black people living in my neighborhood. I don't want them going to my schools, but I'm not racist. And this is, again, you hear this from Donald Trump. Donald Trump will literally say he's the least racist person you've ever met. And it's in his mind, he absolutely believes it. 
He absolutely believes that he's the least racist person you'll ever met. And the Chinese come off in very much the same way. It's tone deaf because we see the complexity on the ground. That's nowhere near as binary as I'm not racist. And so oftentimes, again, white majority views on race in the United States, I find a lot of similarities in ethnically Han majority discussions on race in China as well. And I guess you as a South African, this is a, a very familiar co topic of conversation because South African society in, in so many ways is framed, shaped and built on racial issues. Yes, I mean, you know, kind of, and, and I, and, and in in a way, you know, because I, because South Africa has come through a, a kind of a form of reckoning. Obviously, none of that is none, none of those stuff is, uh, you know, none of those issues have been resolved in South Africa. They're ongoing, but you know, the the process in the '90s of the Truth and Reconciliation Commission. I don't think anyone who really came came through that can really claim to to kind of to to think in the same way. You know, kind of this kind of. This, there's a kind of a language game, I think, going on in both in the U.S. and in China, where where everyone pretends that being a racist is like is something that you can almost be tested for. Like, oh, I, I tested negative for racism, you know, and like it's it's a kind of a horrible thing that a person is or isn't, rather than a a, a particular way the society is arranged and the way that 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 people are complicit in the, with that arrangement, you know. So so I, I think the South African case I think makes that clear, but obviously the South African. Case cases also makes clear how far South Africa still has to go on these issues. Yeah. So this is not an issue that's going to go away anytime soon. I don't think we'll necessarily seem, see an outbreak of the kind of discrimination that we saw in April. Again, I think the Chinese took away some key lessons. And there were some very important takeaways from what happened in Guangzhou. And the key one was communication. And we heard this in the aftermath with the ambassadors and the consul generals uh, that had that communication. And what we heard from the consul general from Nigeria on the streets, why didn't you tell us? And that will be a takeaway that I think the Chinese really will learn from is, you know, when you have this type of change in policy, they will do more outreach. They have made a lot of effort in the post-Guangzhou incident era to improve communication with the local African community. So there is a lot of positive that came out of this. I also want to make sure that we don't leave people with the impression that there is, you know, it's just a racist hellhole in, in Guangzhou. It's very complicated, very nuanced. It did leave a lot of people outside of China, especially in Africa, but around the world with a very jaded view of, of what the Chinese stand for when it comes to race. That is not a view that has been changed that much in the post April Guangzhou incident era, I think certainly among African leaders, presidents and prime ministers, not a single one, not one Cobus is on the record condemning what happened in Guangzhou in April. We heard it from Durko, which is your foreign ministry. We heard it from Jeffrey Onyema, the foreign minister of Nigeria. He condemned it. We heard it from the African Union, but we never heard any president or prime minister say anything negative about China at all from this. So that was a very interesting takeaway as well. Not sure in the future if that will remain the case, but uh, it's something to look for. So that'll do it for this edition. This is really our second to last show. Coming up next, we'll have our annual uh, year in review, uh, year, pre year in preview episode, which we do every year. We've been doing this for 10 years straight. So that'll be our last show of the year. We would like to invite everybody to join us in our really exciting reader community that we have for our daily email newsletter. It's been growing all year. We want to thank all of our subscribers this year for your support. 
all of your feedback, your, your encouragement to keep going, how much you enjoy the newsletter. And also to all of our podcast listeners, we would really love for you to become part of this reader community. It's $7 a month for students and teachers, $15 a month for everybody else. $149 a year is a discounted rate. Let us know if you have any questions. You can email me at eric at chinaafricaproject.com or cobus at chinaafricaproject.com. If you would like to subscribe to the newsletter, go to chinaafricaproject.com slash subscribe. We have a link in the show notes as well. And you get two weeks for free. So just to try it out. And if you don't like it, you can cancel at any time. So we would love for you to join that community in 2021. Follow China Africa News and Analysis every single day. So that'll do it for this edition of the show. For Kobus van Staden in Johannesburg, I'm Eric Olander. Thank you so much for listening. The discussion continues online. Head over to facebook.com slash China Africa Project to share your thoughts on today's show. Or follow the guys on Twitter. Eric's at Iolanda, and you can find Kobus at Stadenesk. For more information about the China Africa Project and to sign up for our free weekly email news brief, go to chinaafricaproject.com.